I watched that yesterday like 17 times and I just was, I literally was like, that's going to be the sermon, God. I think we can get up and go out of here and just say, help us where we're afraid to actually enter into the places where you're calling us, God, and to take us and use us and, and affect the world with your goodness because you are our forever. You're too good not to believe. We, we believe what you say about us. And so I am pumped to get up here and to speak to you. We're in week eight of our wildfire series. This is going through the book of Acts and we're gonna talk about cultural engagement today. And I think in order to talk about cultural engagement, we need to acknowledge a couple of things that have happened recently in culture around us, okay? You ready for that? Uh, I mean, very serious moment here. Thanksgiving occurred, and all you Michigan fans have something super serious to be thankful for, yes? That was lame. I wonder if the, uh, the two of my, my teaching team pastor brothers in arms that are Buckeye fans, if maybe they've rooted out some of the uh, Michigan folk. You won yesterday. Do I hear a thank you, Lord? There you go. That's something to be thankful about, truthfully. Uh, I think the, the Buckeye fans in here that are so quiet and are not wearing any of their gear today, they can practice gratitude even in the middle of suffering, right? I, uh, I talked to uh, one of you this morning, Steve. He's a, he's a good friend, and he said, listen, man, listen, are you preaching? I said, yeah, I'm preaching. He said, well... That platform better be used to extol the virtues of Michigan today because all we ever hear is the Buckeyes. And so I said, you know what, I'll do that. I think we do have something. And, and it's interesting when you think about that because I, I want to I launch off that for just a second because those of you who are major college football fans and followers and, and you got all the bling to prove it, do you know you have a culture, a subculture or a space that you can and should engage or use to bring people closer to Jesus. Amen. What? Sports? Sports. The things that you're interested in, the things that are planted inside of you, the things that make sense to you because part of it is hardwired into making you capable of going into a group or a sphere or an environment and sharing Jesus that way. That's what we're talking about today cultural engagement for the purpose of sharing the good news of the gospel. So turn to chapter 17 in Acts. Flip open your, your flat screens. Go to your Bible app, Acts chapter 17. That is where we are going to stay for the majority of today. And to do that, I need to set up what we call Paul's second missionary journey. And I get to do this with an added panache because I had the opportunity over my sabbatical to travel to Greece with my beautiful bride. Extraordinary experience for our marriage, once in a lifetime thing. And we got to travel the steps of Paul's second missionary journey. So I'm gonna show you some pictures if just so that you can smell and feel and see and empirically experience uh, what it was like in those spaces today. I wanna start with a map to give you a construct of where 
we are in the story, okay? Prior to Acts 17, Paul and some of the apostles have gone out and they have been spreading the gospel, but they've been spreading the gospel down here, lower than Syria is Israel, primarily in Jerusalem. The first missionary journey of Paul and a couple of others was through Asia or what was then called Antioch, this whole area. So these dots, though he did travel those dots on his second missionary journey, where he launched into New territory was in Philippi. So this would be Macedonian. There's this incredible story in Acts 16 where, where Paul is on mission. He's, he's literally uh, a SEAL Team 6 for the gospel and he's on mission. He is going where God is calling him. And there are several places here in Antioch where the Spirit of God is like, no, don't go there. I actually, you, your plan was to go there. I'm rerouting you. And he reroutes him. And then Paul has a vision when he's up in here and the vision is very simply that there is a Macedonian man that interrupts his sleep and says, come help us. Isn't that interesting? Come help us. I think, I think very simple statements sometimes arrest. What do you mean? I mean, the gospel, wouldn't it be better if it was come save us? No, no, no. We're broken. We're hurting. We're desperate. Come help us. And so Paul touches down in Philippi. He moves from Philippi where he shares the gospel and a woman named Lydia comes to know Jesus. She's the first convert in Greco-Roman soil. It's an amazing story. Then he moves to Thessalonica. He goes from Thessalonica to Berea. I spoke about the Berean church a couple of, a few weeks back if you wanna hear that. And then he goes from Berea to Athens. We're gonna be in Athens primarily today. Day. And from Athens, he goes to Corinth, and that makes up the new territory that he hits. Now, here's the critical thing. Why, why include Corinth? Because it's in chapter 18. We're not going to talk a whole lot about it, but I want you to note that he moves from Athens to Corinth because if by virtue of a miracle in time today, we get all the way to the end of my message, some of you start praying for that right now, um, we are going to talk about his movement from Athens to Corinth. So check out these pictures. The first picture here is of my wife and I behind us. You don't get a real good scope of it. But behind us is actually the theater of Philippi. It's the oldest theater in the ancient world. And you see the pillars there in the front. We got to be there. It was incredible. We got to tour it. This next picture is still Philippi. What Philippi is, is it's an open air museum and it's hard even to get the scope because it is no longer an active city. All of it is rubble and there are layers of antiquity as you go through. The roof over here to the left actually covers a mosaic of what was once a basilica for the first church in Philippi. And they're doing digs there, but they're stopped because they'll dig through a layer of sediment and then they have to get permission to dig through the next layer of sediment because it's literally ages and ages and ages deep. It's extraordinary. So this is Philippi, right here in front on this picture, note the Via Ignatia, that is the Romans road, still intact. We in Michigan could learn so much in the maintenance of our roads from the ancient Romans. 
okay? This thing is thousands of years old. It's still intact, most of it actually. Anyway, that's the Via Ignatia. Let's head to the next picture. That's Philippi. We then went from Philippi to Thessalonica. This is the, um, the first church, now a monastery, and still active from somewhere around 1800, or excuse me, 800 AD. And there is inside of this monastery, go to the next picture, there is a shrine of sorts built. This is, this is to commemorate the location where Paul first preached in Thessalonica to a barracks full of soldiers. Right there. Just amazing. We then went, Heather and I went from Thessalonica to Athens. Now this is obviously, Athens is still the largest city in Greece. There are 4 million people and there are in Athens and there are only 10 million in the entire country. 40% of the population of Greece lives in Athens. This is a shot across the top of a multitude of homes and that is the Parthenon at the top. Off to the right, we're actually gonna be off to the right in much of our story today. There are some other pictures and I will show you. Is there another one of Athens here, guys, or is that it for, for Athens? Okay, that's uh, it for Athens. Right here we have old Jerusalem. No, I'm sorry. Um, so this, this story takes place there in the epicenter of culture at the time. You've had plenty of time to go to Acts 17. So let's jump in here. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We're gonna stop there. We're gonna pull apart just a couple of ideas that we need to pay attention to as we think about cultural engagement. And the first is this, that word, provoked. I'm not kidding you. I read the word provoked this week with fresh eyes and I thought to myself, huh, there's probably been times in my life where I've gotten up and preached to Christians about trying not to be provoked. What an interesting contrast that we in our daily lives generally try really hard in the name of the Spirit of God not to be provoked by things. Things like our children. <laughs> things like our spouse. I see some of you elbowing each other out there. We, we, we really need to pull apart what this means here. Because for some of you, I know it's hard not to walk around with a face that doesn't look like you have a heart that's saved. With a face that actually most people would say, gosh, you look like you were weaned on a pickle growing up. Okay? Some of us really need to tell our face to communicate to the world that the joy of the Lord is in our heart. See, that's not the kind 
of provoked we're talking about here. And so let's look at this. Provoked here with Paul is a mixture. It's like the perfect mixture of, of, of like chainsaw gas to get that thing running, right? If you don't put an oil and gas mixture correctly, you'll burn out the cylinders of your chainsaw. This I know because this I've done, especially when I was young and my father was not pleased. He was actually provoked by that act. You, you need to mix these things. Anger is part of it, church. Look, Paul looks and he is agitated by their foolishness. This foolishness of building and making idols that you then worship. Sounds an awful lot like our culture, which loves to build and make idols of stuff and then worship at those idols of stuff. It provokes him. It agitates him. He's angered by the deception of idolatry. He's angered at the way that it twists and distorts and pulls us away from the living God. He's bothered in his spirit at the way that we as people can be sucked away from the living creator God who made us in his image and said, I love you, worship me. Paul is desperate for their desperate need. This is the kind of provoked. He's concerned. Don't forget the concern. Don't stay in the anger. Don't linger just with anger or you will turn into someone who hates the world rather than loves the world. And if you want to change the world because of hatred in the world, you're gonna change the world the wrong way. If you hate the people you're supposed to love, you're not changing them into Jesus. You're changing them into, in his words, twice the son of hell. Concern, care, passion, a willingness to suffer. For Paul, provoked meant when anger is mixed with concern and it moves us to love people. Church, pray to be this kind of provoked. When provoked, I wrote it this way, when provoked produces uncontrolled outbursts, it's unrighteous anger that motivates us to react without thinking and without love. But when provoked produces reasoned responses, this is when righteous agitation motivates us to act with a thoughtful response in love. I don't, I don't think followers of Jesus, man, I hesitate to preach this. I don't think followers of Jesus today are provoked enough. And some of you are like, my word, every Monday morning, I'm so provoked. I can't even, I get it, right? There are things that make us mad, but why are they making you mad? Are they making you mad in the name of Jesus because you love people? Or are they making you mad in the name of you because you hate people? These are the differences. Are you mad at the things that are messing up the lives of people? Or are you mad at the people for being messed up by those things? See, provoked the way God wants us to be provoked always motivates and moves us forward in love. If love's not there, then you shut that provocation down. Paul's reaction is beautiful. He doesn't go into 
the marketplace and freak out on them. Check this out. Check this verse out when you break it down this way. Look at what Paul does. Go ahead and put that next slide up. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he ignored them? No. He argued? No. He yelled? No. He canceled? No. He insulted? No. He accused? No. Did he even preach? No. No, this, this means you don't need to get up on a soapbox with a megaphone and start preaching at people in the next cubicle over from you at the office. No, he reasoned with them. Let's take a look at what reason means. Reasoned is, is to discuss. Look at what he does. He goes first to the synagogue, which was normally his custom, and he, he discusses and he debates with the Jews from their shared knowledge of the scriptures. So there's common ground. He has common ground with the Jews, and he can start based on the authority of scripture. But that's not what he does in the marketplace. He reasoned that as he conversed and persuaded with the Greeks from their cultural philosophies in, in marketplace, place mindset. Peter, who's also an apostle alongside of Paul, he just isn't really moving out of Jerusalem, so he doesn't get as much playtime. Peter says this in 1 Peter, check this one out, but in your heart, honor Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with animosity? No. Disdain? No. Annoyance? No. Defensiveness, arrogance, hostility, foolishness. No, do this. Give the reason with gentleness and respect. Guys, you start putting the ingredients of what Paul is saying with the ingredients of what Peter is saying, you got a winning combo for reasoning with people. I thought this quote by Robert Pate was interesting. He said, I provoke thought because that is what needs provoking. Humanity seems to hate thinking more than any other activity. And yet that is the activity most needed. You see what Paul is doing is he is moving the conversation initially away from our emotional knee-jerk responses and he is moving it to a place where the mind engages. And listen to this, when you offer reasons, church, with gentleness and respect, you provide opportunities for the mind to engage rather than threaten the heart into retreat. Do you see the difference in your interactions with the person in the cubicle next to you or the office or on the assembly line? When you engage the mind in a non-threatening, a gentle and respectful way, there is an openness that you create by doing that. I passionately, I passionately believe that the church is desperate for more marketplace ministers and everyday evangelists to understand that you are to come in to the sanctuary to be prepared, tried and true, pure and sent out church as a sanctuary, you into the world to minister the gospel to people's lives. It's it's, it's the very mission and calling of the church, bar none, through all of the New Testament. 
So let's look at the marketplace. Verse 17 says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now this is what you need to know. The marketplace was not the local supermarket. This, I know a lot of Lowellians, and I'm not sure if those of you that don't come from around Lowell, what those of you that are outside Lowell might not know is that Lowellian people have this longing, this, this hope for the future. This desire that Aldi may someday come to our town. <laughs> we pray for it. And we talk on community forums about it. We share with others our passionate love that Aldi might come to our town. And, and we have a, um, a, a mistaken, I think, connection, perhaps idolatry with cheaper food sources. I, I, I don't know where it comes from, but we, we long for Aldi here. Aldi, marketplaces, supermarkets is what comes to mind when we read the Bible in backwards context. That's not what the marketplace of of this day and age, the marketplace of Athens was the center. Here, listen, the center for news and media, for banking, for business, for economy. It was the place where art in music and paintings and sculptures. It's where philosophers and ideas and education for growth and progress. This is the center for government and law and court. That was the marketplace. It was the center of the center of culture in Athens. This is a picture of the remains of the Agora, which is Greek for marketplace in Athens. And if you look, you can see through all the way at the top on that rock ledge you see the edge of the Parthenon the scope of this marketplace is a mile wide and all the things I just described would take place here on a daily basis and Paul is drawn directly to the center of the place where the gospel could make the biggest difference and church I want you to think of your life and I want you to think of the everyday parts and the phenomenal parts and I want you to think where in there is the place where the gospel will make the most difference in the lives around me how will the good news of Jesus change the world see even more for Athens and for Rome these were the two city centers of the ancient world and so we are in the center of the center of the center of where ideas new ideas conflicting with dominant ideas they were forged here and if they were accepted they would flow out and set the course for how all the people in society lived and thought so here's cultural engagement on Paul's behalf. This is cultural engagement. It's advancing towards centers of influence in the culture with faith for the, for the world's redemption. Now, I want to contrast that with the unfortunate reality of how a lot of churches think about cultural engagement. This is cultural disengagement. It is retreating from places of influence out of fear of the world's pitfalls and dangers. And here's the problem. Sometimes I think we leave our home and we come to church with an intent to culturally disengage the places of influence out of fear of the world's pitfalls and dangers. And part of the reason that I think that is that my tradition growing up, my experience growing up was part of a church that was angry and afraid so it wouldn't go out into the world with the gospel. It stayed in. 
Cultural disengagement was normal and it was defended in that context. And many churches fail to evangelize because they convince themselves that they can build ramparts and they can put up megaphones on those ramparts and they can dig a moat around the castle walls and they can put in a really selective drawbridge and then they can turn up the volume on the megaphones and they can shout from the walls of the castle, oh, you're going the wrong direction world you you need help world do something different world hey turn 90 degrees world no come back this way and they believe that somehow inside of the volume of their megaphone they're actually going to reach people when Jesus way was completely other than that instead of staying in heaven in his nice plush comfy chair in heaven Jesus literally was like hey I'm going to give up the rights of divinity and I am going to plunge into the world with the good news to change it. That's what Jesus did. It's opposite of everything we see in the wildfire of the church of Acts. That's, that's cultural disengagement. The act of sharing Jesus in the world church is not safe. It's not protected. It's not certain. It's, it's, it's not preserved away from the world or separated. It's, it's literally immersed in it. There's no guarantees. Proclaiming the gospel is risky business. It's the original risky business. Paul's example to us here is to continually submerge ourselves directly in the epicenters of culture's dominant ideas where the tremors of influence are are most acutely communicated he's invited to dialogue with the most prevalent influencers these epicurean philosophers these stoic thought leaders about the meaning of life in the world of his day paul believed that we the church needs to get into the world while acting like Jesus in the world in order to bring Jesus to the world. And he lived it out. Verse 19 goes on. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We get so myopic, and quite frankly, there's so much hubris in society about history. We very often look at at ages gone by in history, and we think we're better than them. So we name our age the information age. This was the original information age, church, right here. I want to show you just what this looked like. There's some steps. These were, the, these were the steps cut into the rock. See, they called the, the Areopagus was the high council. It was the thought leaders of thought leaders. It was the elite of the elite thinkers of the day. But it was the council. The Areopagus meant council. The place that the Areopagus meant was on a rock outcropping called the Acropolis. Okay. This next picture is up above those stairs. This is the Acropolis where they would meet and hold court on ideas. And they would talk like a TEDx talk. The red carpet of TEDx was right there. 
And then those ideas based on the merit contained in them would either spread or they would be shut down right here. What I want you to pay attention to, particularly in this idea of the marketplace up to the Areopagus, is that Paul has identified something remarkable about the culture, the undergirding of this culture that becomes imperative. We're going to read through Paul's sermon here. Paul's TED talk here. We're going we're gonna to pick apart one of the most flawless rhetorical deliveries in the history of the world, still studied today by speech and communication experts. They will go to the Bible, to Acts chapter 17, to see how he did what he did. It's brilliant. To understand it, you need to recognize before we even get into it that Paul has identified something about Athens that's profound. See, they, they really, these Epicureans and these Stoics, they were um, not, not all that sure what they believed. Honestly, relativism permeated those, those philosophies. Tolerance was highly valued. Incidentally, church, tolerance is not a biblical value. Love is. What Paul identified is that the single most important value to the elite thinkers of his day was knowledge, was information. They were hogs for information. And when that's the case... The cardinal sin, the thing you are the most horrified to admit, the thing that would catch you up and cause you the most disturbance in your soul would be ignorance. The cardinal sin to Athens, the epicenter of thought of its day, was ignorance. Now check out what Paul does. I don't think you're ready for this. You better get ready. 22, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. 
even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Y'all can, you know, just give that a, a hand. Paul's getting an applause from heaven here. Listen, there are, there are five cultural engagement lessons to pull in quick succession. They're powerful out of what Paul does with the Areopagus. And I'm, I'm calling this uh, Paul at TEDx on the hope of the world. That's, that's what we're going to call it, Okay. It's, it's truly near genius. I mean, it, it's, it's flawless. It's perfect. And the first thing that you see, if you note, you've got your, I hope you still have your Bible open in front of you, but Paul uses uh, religion and respect to, to find common ground. And I'm just going to say it this way. If you if you're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray to be provoked and I'm going to try to reasonably upload, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage culture. I'm going to do it. If you do that and you skip the common ground step, you're not going to get very far. He, he says to them, men of Athens, I, I see that in every way you are very religious. He, he establishes a commonality. Paul was known as the epitome of religious in the Jewish culture that he comes from. Religion, I am religious. I'm faithful in my pursuit of God. So he establishes common ground. And, and I want to just say it this way um, because I want to bring it down to earth. Like I was talking to Heather about this last week and she found a meme and she's like, okay, here it is, here it is. Because you're gonna have people that are listening and they're, they're not gonna feel like this is something they can do. And, and that's how I feel most of the time because I'm an introvert and you're an extrovert. So she found this, um, <laughs> this little meme and I wanna read it to you uh, from some lady that, or not a meme, but a post, some lady posted this. She said, my husband, the extrovert, and I, the introvert, got separated on our flight. We're in middle seats in the same row. I've already apologized to the people sitting next to me like seven times. My husband is sharing beef jerky with strangers, and I think he's now been invited into someone's wedding. <laughs> Extroverts in the room are like, yeah, well, that's what you do on an airplane. Introverts are in the room that are like, they're like, please, Lord, never put an extrovert next to me on a plane. When I get on an airplane, I ask quickly to the people that are next to me, I will literally try to build a bridge. And here's the first bridge. It's, it's, I'll, I'll ask them what they do because what do they have to ask me back? What do I do? That gives me the opportunity to say, I'm a pastor. So how do you want to do this? You, you want to get saved right now or should we move like three or four? And, and, um, and that I'm, I'm just like, I do, I'll engage you. I'll talk about your life. I want to find out about you. I'm interested in, in who you are. And, um, and, and a lot of people just put their headphones in. And that gives me permission to sleep the rest of the trip, right? Other people will respond and they will engage. And I know for the introverts in the room, I, I know you're like, 
I, I just, I'm not going to do. You know what you can do? You can establish common ground. You can build a bridge with the people in your circles. Sometimes it even looks like flattery or encouragement or just doing something that tells that person you care about them and you're interested in their life. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to find common ground. Paul used religion and respect to do that. The second thing is you're going to gain cultural fluency. That's really simple. Paul uses idols and ignorance. I already mentioned the ignorance thing. As I pass, he says this, as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship to an unknown God. He is like, he is literally like surgically opening up their souls. He's reaching in and he's prodding the thing that will cause them to be like, oh, we got it. Okay. Yep. Yep. You understand who I am. That's good. That's right. That's helpful as you engage culture, gain cultural fluency. Church music is a powerful way to do that. Which, next, which is next, Paul stays relevant. Stay relevant in your approach to people. You might love the Gaithers. The young people in the room are like, who are you talking about? You don't need to know. The old people in the room are like, I love the Gaithers. That's okay. If you're trying to minister to someone younger than you or someone not in the church, don't send them a bunch of Gaither music. Amen. You're, <laughs> you're culturally irrelevant. But if you know that someone's going through a really, really hard time, that they're struggling and they've invited you into that situation, they need a miracle, how about the last song we just sang for worship today? How about sending them that? A lot of you are, uh, you believe in the prophecy of uh, JC, Johnny Cash. Send him a Johnny Cash song. Use the things that are going to be meaningful in their life. Look, look, look here. I mean, Paul uses his rational mind and he uses natural truth. This is a distinctly different approach than he would have used in the synagogue with the Jews. In the synagogue with the Jews, the scriptures were the authority. So he starts on that common ground. He's relevant, very relevant in his understanding of scripture, but not in the marketplace, not at the Agora. At the Agora, the thing that would touch the hearts of people were the poems and the songs of their philosophies. And so he searches those poems and songs. He finds natural revealed truth in nature and he uses that to communicate meaningfully. Church, this is really good news because a lot of us have interests that aren't all in the Bible all the time. Do you know God wants to use those interests? Michigan sports fans, Michigan hunters, creative memory crafters. I, I don't... I'm. Sorry, I ran out of, you know. Use things that make sense to the people around you. And then appeal to common sense. Paul uses good sense to expose faulty thinking and ideology here. This is where a lot of us need to sit up and take note. He says, he says these things it's in quick succession. Ought not 
to think, the divine being, is an image formed by the art or imagination of man. He's going right to the, to, to the neologic of this incredibly um, elite thinking group. And he is saying to these elite thinkers, do you see how illogical you ought not to think that the divine being who created you is actually created by you in the form of some um, golden image or some metallic craft that you put up on little ledges and, and worship. And by the way, guys, you're not even worshiping them. You're just appeasing them. That's very different than adoring them. There's no personal relationship possible here at all. You just appease them before you go on your sea voyage so your, sea do your ship doesn't sink. That's not worship. Going after them, logic. And then the last is he touches their emotion. He uses words that actually evoke a remotion, an emotional response. And I want you, church, to know that's okay. Once you've got to a progressive point, that's okay. He talks about the times of ignorance that God overlooked. But he talks about how God is now prepared to judge the world and has given assurance to all by raising up this man he sent from the dead. Now, here's the deal. You and I need to be able to have permission to touch emotion in someone else with the story of the gospel. And I think sometimes we're very afraid to go to the places of feeling because that becomes too intimate with those around us. No, no, to get all the way to the place God wants to go, you have to be willing to touch the emotions of someone's soul. Now, that's a powerful, flawless message. And in five minutes, I want to show you what Paul thought of his own message. Remember I said at the beginning, we're going to go to Corinth. We made it, church. We're going to get to Corinth. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again about this. I, I want you to know, when I preach a sermon... If the results of my sermon were some mocked and others said, uh, we'll listen to you again sometime about this. That's not a great response. <laughs> so Paul went out from their midst. He leaves. But some, that communicates small, some men joined him. And believed. Among them also was Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman a woman, one woman, named Demarius and others with them. This, this is not, <laughs> this is a great TEDx presentation. Knocked it out of the park. This is not a great response. This is not a fruit producing. Wow, 3,000 people got saved. Remember Pentecost? That didn't happen here. When I realized this, I was like, <gasps> whoa. He goes from Athens to Corinth, and I, wa I want you to listen. We need to look at the Athens sermon, and then we need to see how Paul evaluated his own sermon. Because once he gets to Corinth, he starts a church in Corinth, 
And after that church is established, he writes 1 Corinthians, a letter to the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, listen to what he says about how he came to Corinth. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the mystery of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, uh, another translation says, resolved, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men and women, but in the power of God. That is how he approached the Corinthian church. And here's why that's incredibly good news for us, church. Because you don't have to be able to deliver a TEDx on the hope of the world on the red carpet. If one of you ever gets invited to that and you do that, please call me. I swear I'm there. I will hear you on TEDx. But it's very unlikely that any of us ever will. What we need to know is that There are methodologies to cultural engagement tools that God has given us to use in the context of the circles and groups in our life, in the people around us. So there's three things from what Paul just said I want to share with you. The first is this, to share your faith effectively. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. It does not have to be proclaiming the mystery of God like Paul did at the Areopagus. Keep it simple. How someone responds to Jesus is far more dependent on their openness than on your eloquence. So pray for their openness. Ask the Spirit of God to move in power to open them up. The, the second thing is you, you don't have to have all the answers. I don't know can be an absolutely powerful response for someone, but I will go and I will try to get the answer. Look at one of the first cases of evangelism in John chapter two. Philip is trying to get his lifelong buddy, Nathaniel, to come see Jesus. And, and Nathaniel's response is, where's he from? And Philip's like, Nazareth? And if you knew their culture or your context, that was not a great answer. Nathaniel's response is, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Philip says, and I quote, come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Church, you can say to people, come and see. Come read this book with me. Maybe it'll have answers. Come to my life group and see. Come to my church and see. Come into my life and walk with me and see Jesus. Come see. You don't have to have all the answers. You do, and this is the last one, you do have to know your answer. What do I mean by that? In John chapter 9, Jesus heals this blind guy. The blind guy didn't even know Jesus' name before, during, or after, had no idea who he was. The whole community is in an uproar 
because he heals the guy on a Sabbath. And so they're, they're, they put him through an inquisition. I mean, it is like the Spanish inquisition. They're about to put the guy on a rack, right? And they keep asking him, who is he? Why did he do what he do? Who is he? Why is, tell us who he is. And the guy says, I don't know. I know. I was blind. I met this guy. And now I can see. Church, you need to know, you need to be able to give an answer for the hope that is within you. In reasonableness and gentleness, you need to be able to say, hi, this is me. I was fill in the blank. I met Jesus and now I am free. That's what you need to be able to share. So God, as we close today, I, I just ask that you would instill through the power of your spirit, the call on each one of our lives to go out through those doors and to take church to the world, to take Jesus to the world, that it would not be coming into these four walls and sitting here and acting like somehow we're doing what you called us to do. No, no, this is where it starts. The equipping starts here. I hope the empowering starts here, but it goes out into the world. And so God, please, please, with your spirit, Stick a seed so deep inside of every one of our hearts that we cannot help but begin to produce fruit as we share the story you have given us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'll see you next week, church.